So last month, um, when we were together, we ventured into the exploration of the emotion known as fear. Um, and because of that, I shared with all of you some of my own fears and phobias, if you remember. I'm not going to do that again um, today, but I am going to share something else with you. Um, and I'm a big fan of Pixar movies uh, or Pixar Animation Studios. Uh, in case you aren't aware of who they are, um, even though I would venture to guess you've probably seen their work, they're a uh, computer animation studio based in California, and they are now owned by the Walt Disney Company. Um, so in short, they make computer animated films. Um, having the distinction of making the first ever computer animated feature film, Toy Story, which I remember seeing as a kid. Um, since then, they have made 22 feature films, all of them getting a rating of at least an A minus, so they do very well. Uh, they've earned 20 Academy Awards, 8 Golden Globes, 11 Grammys, and a ton of other awards and acknowledgments for all of their work and efforts. Um, their films have taken us into the world of toys, the Australian coral reef, the world of superhumans, into the far future, into a polluted world, the realm of monsters, the jungles of South America, the consciousness of the mind, the Mexican afterlife, the thrill-inducing speedway, the mystic lands of medieval Scotland, and the world of fine cuisine in the streets of Paris. Um, the characters of these stories are beloved across the globe. Um, they speak to the minds of children and adults alike. And the question that naturally, at least in my mind, would come up is, what is the source of all their success? Now, it, it's a number of things, I'm sure. It's a big operation, and there's a lot of talent behind it. But one thing will stand out as kind of a core component um, that attributes to them being as, as successful as they are. And arguably, they're probably one of the greatest storytellers of our generation. Their stories are loved by different cultures, different age groups. Their stories involve a, a deep understanding of human emotions and motivations of, of, of human beings and psychology. And because of all that, they have this kind of universal appeal um, to such a diverse group of people. And they do employ their 22 rules of storytelling, which is very fun to read if you haven't um, come across that at all. Um, but I think it's very, very um, in-depth in and detailed in, in why they do so well. But there's something more. Uh, there's something simple that they invoke that produces such a be beloved response and that they ultimately, they do something that perhaps not everyone may initially realize and that they stimulate and engage the most dominant faculty of man, the imagination. Their tales interact with a part of ourselves that is the source of the greatest power of conviction, even greater than reason. So the, the stories that they make they just, they, they speak to that extremely powerful source of conviction. Imagination makes people believe, doubt, and even deny reason at times. And they continue to succeed because every character, every plot, every villain, every challenge, every lesson in all of their tales 
part of us that is just more than flesh, the part beyond ourselves, the part that is reflective of our master, the part that is, identifies us with the image of God, the part that shows the steam of his breath that he has left on us. Uh, and they capture this moment in, in one of their films, which I'll share with you, uh, in Ratatouille, if those of you who are familiar with it. Uh, Remy's a little rat in Paris and happens to know how to cook. Again, they're very fantastical tales, right? Um, but one of the opening lines in the film, um, this is what he says. And these are the things that I'm watching these movies, and these are the things I kind of pull out and, and keep, right? He says this. He's like, I know I'm supposed to hate humans, but there's just something about them. They don't just survive. They discover. They create. And then he makes, you know, look at their food, right? Um, and here's where we're going to break ground this morning on, on our little journey. Um, as you may recall, uh, but we've been looking at this series of messages, just looking at the complete person of Jesus Christ as the one human being who is completely fulfilled, he's perfect, and understanding that while we know that our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate salvation is ultimately found in him and realized in him in glory, um, and the establishment of the kingdom of God, it does not mean that we are called to sit and wait idly around um, until joy comes, but be active and begin to have and experience aspects of that joy right now. Um, though dimly, um, until we await it to be fully realized, but we are supposed to act on those things right now. So we've been learning from his life events and his teachings so that we may better understand and animate our lives um, in such a way that we experience greater, deeper, and more fulfilling lives, not only with ourselves, but with those that we share them with. How to love more deeply, forgive more freely, act more boldly, live more contently, and fear more sweetly. And today we're going to look at something that is many times hidden right in plain sight. Uh, we've been using it this morning. We've been using it in our songs. We've been using it in our Bible reading. Part of the reason we do those things in a worship service. And that's, again, our imagination. If we can learn to wield our love, forgiveness, actions, choices, and fear for the purpose of higher living, how much more will our lives be enriched when our imaginations are employed for the same purpose? Our imagination, our most dominant faculty, the permanent, essential mental power that most influences our beliefs, satisfactions, emotions, and affections, executed in such a way that it forever amplifies our joys, passions, pursuits, and actions. And that's our journey for this morning. So where we're going to begin is with Jesus. Uh, he's outside the, wall, the walls of Jerusalem. And as we recall, the earthly ministry of Jesus was about a little over three years long. Um, and at the beginning of the ministry, he's in Jerusalem, in Judea. He gets baptized by John the Baptist. Shortly after that, he goes into the wilderness and is temp um, faces the 40 uh, days of, of fasting and temptation. Um, he picks some disciples. He performs a miracle at the wedding of Cana. And then shortly after that, it is time for the yearly Passover celebration. Um, so Jesus attended three of them, right? Three-year ministry, and they do it every year. Um, and at this scene, it was, he cleanses the temple, right? He did that more than once. Um, and it's a week-long celebration. So he's camped out outside of Jerusalem during this week-long celebration of the Passover. So he and his disciples are there um, outside the city. 
And this is where our passage this morning will pick up. Um, what we're going to look at is a, an interview that he has with a scholar and a teacher uh, that went to meet Jesus in the cover of night. And what we're going to learn from this interaction is how God actively and consistently encourages us to utilize our imaginations to better understand and adore the truths which he has established in life, right? So let's own in on this memorable interaction between this man and this imaginative Christ, and let's open our Bibles to John 3. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 15. John 3, verses 1 through 15. I'm sure it's a passage that many of you are familiar with. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This passage has a unique characteristic to it. If we, if we start to take a really good look at it and, and just start to really meditate on, on what's going on here, it has a very unique characteristic to it. Uh, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and for those of you that are familiar with that, he was a believer in the resurrection of the dead. He was one who held both to the written and oral traditions of the law. But this isn't the only interaction that Jesus has with a Pharisee throughout his earthly ministry. So what makes this one particularly unique? Well, unlike most of the other interactions that Jesus has with the Pharisees, this one actually believes that he's sent from God. All the other ones felt that he had a devil, or he was possessed by a demon, or they were very skeptical of who Jesus was. So what we have is a religious leader that is trained, instructed, knowledgeable, and pious, but also open and genuine in his pursuit of Christ. Because, because of this, Jesus addresses him not so much drastically different than he does everyone else, but with a greater degree of candor. He's direct. And he's hopeful for Nicodemus to evolve beyond just his knowledge. 
to be a true, genuine worshiper of God and the one whom God has sent. And Jesus does this in a manner that God has done to all men by appealing to his imagination. We're going to see that. So what we hope to answer is this. How does the imagination, which is a faculty, which is a permanent mental power of mankind, how does that faculty of man serve in our fulfillment of God and life? It's there, just like our faculty to reason and love and all those things, but how often do we think about our imagination as a faculty that we exercise? So what our first interaction here teaches us is that it is first and foremost founded on truth. It's founded on truth. The first um, four verses. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know, see, so representing a group, right? We know that, we are, that you are a teacher come from God, that no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter into a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So before anything else, right, so Nicodemus starts off by telling them, we know you're from God, and before anything else, he hits him right between the eyes. Truly, truly, right, so Jesus is beginning with, believe me, this is true, I know it firsthand, right, new birth is needed for the kingdom of God. Jesus knows why Nicodemus is there. Right? Nicodemus even gives us insight in this passage, right? and Jesus picks it up. He says what? We know, again, he's representing a group, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And it's, it's almost like as you read this, it's almost like Jesus stops him right there, right then and there. I know you're getting excited, Nicodemus and your group. I know you and your counterparts are aware of the signs. I know your group has heard the testimony and the endorsement of John the Baptist. I know you're all moved and enthralled by my cleansing of the temple. I did it in a way that it's my house. It's so different from what you've been accustomed to. I know that the authority that I've shown over the religious leaders has you all in a quandary. I know of all your eagerness, passions, and the anticipations of what these signs might mean. Right? I know of your heart, deep, heartfelt desire for the establishment of the kingdom of God. Right? Nicodemus isn't just randomly going here. Him and his friends are all giddy with excitement over what's happening with this man from Nazareth. Your imagination is taking off, isn't it, Nicodemus? You and your friends. But wait. What's Jesus' response? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus essentially just pulls the plug and drains out all the excitement that this man has, all the lively imagination that Nicodemus has of the coming kingdom, that he comes to Jesus in the, in the cover of night, and, and the, what he first says to him is like, I know you're from God. There's excitement from Nicodemus, and Jesus just pulls the plug, drains it all out, because it is founded on a misconception. It's founded on a misconception. No matter how, and, and this is an important lesson. No matter how lively or how satisfying the imagination can take us, 
Even if it takes us to grand praise, even if it takes us to grand worship, even if it takes us to the feet of the Savior himself, it is worth nothing. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't say anything except move us further into delusion. Our imaginations won't serve us any good if it flames the fire of a lie. So Jesus is direct with him. And he tells him a direct truth. So that instead, what, it's not what he thinks is, is the truth, but what Jesus is trying to plant in his mind that will be the foundation of his joy. Our imagination can serve us well, in a great way, when it is founded on truth, so that it may be built by reason. It may be built by reason. Nicodemus is a learned man, right? A Pharisee, a devout Jew, an observer and teacher of the law. But that isn't enough. It isn't enough to just know truths, right? Matthew 15, 8 and 9, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. How does that happen? How do you know truths and vainly worship God? And the answer is in our subtitle, right? Built by reason. God has truly fashioned us with wonderful minds. But a truth, once planted in our minds, will begin to grow. Reason is the very first faculty that begins to interact with this, this thought, this potential truth. And reason is the first faculty that's going to help it to grow. What we allow to be grafted into the recesses of our minds will either bring about great joys or great sorrows as that little seed grows. Nicodemus was unknowingly nurturing the wrong truth. And Jesus rips out the weed, so to speak, and directly plants the correct seed of truth in its place. That's why he almost like cuts him off. Nicodemus was anticipating the Messiah to establish the kingdom of God, push Rome out, and to reestablish the reign of the Davidic monarchy. Right? He's already walking around the temple like he owns the place. It's only a matter of time before he sits on the throne. And what is Jesus' response? And, and this is why as you read this, it's just truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I, I couldn't imagine Nicodemus's face. Just, what? I, that's not where I thought this was going. Our minds will often act, and hopefully they do, as a filter, right? When a potential truth comes into our minds, the first thing to happen is to see if it's reasonable, right? If a truth that comes into our minds, an idea, that, a potential truth that comes into our minds is that we're impervious to fire, a sane mind will quickly dispel that idea. Right? For no reasonable person is going to allow that thought to grow and become more than just a thought. Therefore, it is not often the large lies that we need to concern ourselves with, but more often than not, it's the subtle ones. It's like atrial fibrillation, right? An irregular heartbeat. As it's not very optimal, but it's stable. So what do they need to do? They need to reset it. And little lies or little misconceptions like Nicodemus has was just that. It's not optimal, but it's stable, and that's the danger. So what does Jesus do? He resets it. He just hits them directly between the eyes. and It's like, you got the whole thing all wrong, completely wrong. 
Our reasoning must be able, and this is where, where it's important to learn and study and do Bible study and listen and, and just challenge ourselves, right? Because our reasoning must be able to remove dangerous things that seem reasonable initially. Otherwise, chaos will just ensue later. And this is something that is relatable to everyone, even people who are non-spiritual. So I'll use my, my pop culture reference that I, I like to use, right? So the prime example is Captain America, right? Quarantine made a lot of pop culture references in my bank here, okay? Um, Steve Rogers becomes Captain America. So he was a weak, small soldier. He was less than 100 pounds, but he was a good-natured man. Right? So he was selected to undergo an experimental super soldier serum that would help in the war against the Nazis. And the unlikeliest of heroes, to be sure, Steve Rogers, who was the weakest recruit, constantly got um, rejected, asthmatic, health problems, physically inferior. He was under five feet tall. He was 98 pounds. But he had courage, loyalty, persistence, intelligence, selflessness. And the serum... And it's a neat portion of the film, but what the serum would do is not only enhance the physical qualities of the man, you know, like increase muscle mass, height, stamina, strength, as a soldier would need, but the serum amplifies everything inside. So yes, physical attributes grow, but if there's goodness, it becomes great. If there's bad, it becomes worse. And in many ways, our imaginations do that as well don't they? So what we hold on to, the truths that we hold dear, grow as they settle in our minds. And reason is the very first thing to interact with those thoughts. Reason is the one faculty that we have the most control over. We can train it. We can neglect it. We can execute it very well if we choose to do so. And if we do, we can avoid many hardships in life. Because the first line of defense against folly and deception is falsehoods are going to cut out by a strong reasoning. So then our imaginations could be a force for good, like Captain America, or bad, like Red Skull, who's the bad guy in the film, right? This is why Jesus almost interrupts Nicodemus. He's direct with the truth that he presents to him. So what is presented may be removed, and what Christ has now placed in his mind might be kept there. But in order for it to be kept there, truth begins to build it up by reason. But what really, really keeps it there is when it's realized through struggle. When it's realized through struggle. Verse 4. So this is after Jesus hits him between the eyes, right? Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I think it's safe to say that Nicodemus is wrestling with the newfound truth that Jesus provides him. And that is to be expected, right? Of the realization of one truth will inherently challenge other falsehoods that may be, we may hold on to. Blindly accepting things will never bring about great things in our lives. But things that we reasonably build, things that we wrestle with and find to be true, will allow us to reach a next stage where we can experience greater depth and enjoyment of those very truths that caused so much strife before. A prime example, 
Not many people, if any people at all, ever come to the realization of Jesus as Lord without it really shaking them. Doing some type of discomfort, if you will. John 3, 20-21, For everyone who does wicked things, which is everyone, and hates the light, which is everyone, and does not come to the light, which is everyone, lest his work should be exposed, but whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Nobody's going to do something that they genuinely do not want or do not like or do not enjoy, and it's going to be easy. John 6, 43 through 44, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. I don't know anybody who grumbles over things they enjoy. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's a, a wrestling, there's a struggle when it comes to realizing particular truths. And deeper truths, more powerful truths, are going to take a lot more wrestling and a lot more conflict and a lot more strife. J um, Jacob's wrestle with God is a perfect example. right? We never leave unscathed. Neither did Jacob. Truth does not bow to anyone. It simply is. And, the, and that's the key, that we are intended to conform to the truth, not the other way around. So the process is meant for us to think. So um, C.S. Lewis, in his, in his Chronicles of Narnia books, there's an occurrence where Hustis confronts Aslan about the nature of stars. In this little one-liner I really like, he says, in our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. And he says, Aslan responds to him, well, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but what it's made of. There's a struggle and a realization to what is true. A truth expressed, reasoned, and realized primes us for the very next stage where Jesus now is going to take Nicodemus. And that is understanding that at this point of realization, so he, he confronts Nicodemus with this, Nicodemus is, is wrestling it within his mind, this is when the truth begins to now flirt with our emotions. Verses 5 through 8, Jesus answers. So now after he says, you know, can a man be born twice? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I had said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with, the, with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Verse 7, so now as we look at this, this little chunk of passage, right? And I've been putting the scripture verses on the back of the outline, so you can quickly reference it. Verse 7 provides us with a, some insight into the tone and the vibe of this interaction that's going on, right? Jesus tells Nicodemus at the beginning of verse 7, do not marvel, meaning don't be so astonished, don't be so surprised, don't be so dumbfounded, don't be so flabbergasted, don't be so astounded and speechless. So what this means is between verses 3 and 4, this is the, this is the feedback that Nicodemus is giving. Otherwise, Jesus responds that way. So reading verses 3 and 4 again, in that tone, just to get an idea, a taste of this interaction. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, again, marveling, 
being astonished, speechless, dumbfounded. How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What have we learned? Jesus hits him directly with the truth. He can, he's a teacher of, the law, of Israel. He can handle it, right? We see then by the response of Nicodemus that he almost is simultaneous display of him attempting to reason what Jesus told him and wrestling with it. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, Jesus' second response, which is what we just read, starting in verse 5, is there to help spark the imagination of Nicodemus by having the truth that Jesus already told him, because he doesn't tell him anything new, flirt with the affections of his heart in, in hopes that he sees the same truth in a different way and maybe he'll get it. Maybe he'll understand. Because he clearly doesn't. And the whole point of this, the whole reason Jesus is going in this direction is he wants to begin to widen our capacity for comprehension. Right? Otherwise, we would just get a bunch of truths listed. But that's not the way Jesus presents anything to us. He, he gives us examples. He gives us these, these follow-up responses Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus' first statement was simple and direct, right? The first, first statement. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Boom, there it is, deal with it. Now, the second statement, he's expounding now. It's the same truth, but he's expounding on it. What does he mean by, 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 by saying born again? Because obviously Nicodemus didn't get it. So Jesus expounds. Well, he doesn't mean to enter into a second time into this one, his mother's womb. It means to be born of water and the spirit. Flesh births flesh, spirit births spirit. What he's trying now, by the way, following up with this example, he's meaning they're independent of each other, meaning it isn't a physical birth. He's trying to help Nicodemus come to terms with this. Do you see it? What he's doing? He's attempting to widen the scope of the mind of Nicodemus. Your scope is really, really small if you think what I'm talking about is entering into your mother's womb as an old man. It's not where I'm going with this. And let us really begin to consider this. The ultimate goal of truth, when it's presented in any form is to help us gain greater perspective. This wouldn't be the last time Jesus tries this, by the way. He does it quite often. He does it with um, his interaction with Pilate. John 18, verses 33 through 38. This scene. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say, to, say it to you about me? Pilate answers, Am I a Jew? Your own nations and chief priests has delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king, and for this purpose I was born. And for, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. 
everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he says this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Widen your understanding, Pilate. You're so focused on the validation of my kingship that you fail to consider the scope of where my authority ends. In his inability and failure to do this, by the way, Pilate ended up finding more peace in satisfying the mob than he did in satisfying God. So understand that Jesus is doing this to Nicodemus, he's doing it to Pilate, he's doing it to the Sanhedrin, he does it to the disciples, he does it to us as well. He gives us truths, and he wants us to now, because of it, start to really begin to ponder and stretch our understanding as far as we are able to, because in so doing that, we come to see and savor and understand more of him. So here's, here's the truth, and, and I hope this kind of brings it from this ethereal thing in our minds to a little bit more of, of anchored in reality. The, the observable universe um, is a spherical region of the universe and everything that's in it that can be observed, right? So it's from Earth or any of the telescope, it's, it's the furthest we are able to see, period. It's the furthest reaches of space that we as human beings, whether we're using telescopes or eyes, binoculars, no matter what, that we are able to see. It's about 45.7 billion light years across, one end to the other. <clears throat> so let's reason with that. It will take a beam of light, 45.7 billion years, to go from one end to the other. But yet there's space beyond that. We just can't see it. Experts say if we live forever, we'll never reach the end, even if we live forever, which is kind of astounding. Yet there's planets and stars and galaxies and nebulas and other cosmological bodies and celestial bodies outside of that spherical vision that we're able to see. Now let's begin to widen our comprehension, right? This is the stages that we need to go through. If we'll never witness it, why is it there? Why make it? Who is really this being that makes things that we'll never see? So this is where we let our imagination run wild and we really get lost in the glory of God. You see how valuable, how important honing our imaginations can be. Why has God communicated with us in such a way to stimulate that aspect of the human faculty? There's purpose behind it. The Psalms are not based just on truths. I think David was a very imaginative person. You just read the Psalms and you see it all over the place. And they're meant to inspire us to follow suit. Because once we start to widen our ability or our capacity of comprehending truths, it moves us to meditate on relatable experiences. And moves us to allow us to meditate on relatable experiences. Verse 7, again, the second portion of these, this, this section of Scripture. Do not marvel, right, he's talking to Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Again, the same truth, nothing's changed. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. 
so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Why make it? Why make the universe so large if we'll never see probably 99.9% of it? Why? It is so that we may meditate on the fact that it's there. Even though we'll never see it, we'll meditate on its grandeur and maybe in, a, in just a slither of a fraction of a second begin to consider the greatness of the maker who put it there. And then when we, when we join David in saying all that stuff that we'll never see, but yet it's there, are just the outputting of his fingertips, then, you, then our imaginations really start to get going. And we experience probably the deepest, most satisfying praises of our lives. Jesus is almost taking the hand of Nicodemus through this interaction, helping him try to expand his capacity for comprehension so he's not thinking about, you know, new birth, meaning a second physical birth, and help him to understand by relating it to something that he does know and he can experience. Right? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Again, Jesus is not adding new truths. He's just deepening perspective. Because now the imagination is getting ready to take off. He's hoping that Nicodemus is starting to, to get that spark. The wind in all its mystery, its freedom, its unknown origin, is such that it reflects the presence and yet the various origins of the children of God. These relatable examples are there so that we may relish and swim in the depth of their reaching experience. We've all experienced the wind. Now if we relate them to these truths, how much it animates and activates more of who we are than just reason. Now it hits our affections. Now it hits our praises. Now it hits our creativity. Now it hits all these other human faculties. So we think of the truths that they're founded on. All aspects of life. When we dine, drink, celebrate, walk, breathe, love, mourn, rest. The diversity of the world that we have been given alone shows the depth of the imagination of our Lord. Why lavish such a creation on us? Right, Proverbs 6, the 6 through 11. Go to the ant. O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want, you, want like an armed man. The Psalms and the Proverbs are, are, are this in its totality trying to help us to understand and, and activate as much as ourselves as we can through what we're given. We are to take the truths of God and do something with them. Don't just bury them in the recesses of our minds like the slothful servant who buried the talent that his master gave him, but try to make something from it. You're given precious truths. Make something of that. Think on them. Grow with them. Paul in Romans 8, 18-23, for I consider, he's considering, so that means he's taking a truth, he's thinking about a truth. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Uh, sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons and the redemption of our bodies. Paul writes this deep, impactful truth of a future hope that is before us, yet he doesn't do it in a way that is just simple in truth. He does it in a way to stimulate and engage the imagination. I love the verse about creation groaning. All I can imagine is the grass groaning, wanting the adoption and the establishment of the children of God. So that brings a joy in me that ends up becoming praise. We can't ignore the faculties of who we are as, as beings. But when we don't and we, we hone on them, how much deeper, how much richer, how much lovelier we can live our lives now and only imagine when they're fully realized. So it's with good reason that Paul gives us this example because the goal of it all is so that it fuels our joy. It fuels our joy. The last few verses here, 9 through 15, Nicodemus said to him, so Jesus gives him this example and all these things. So this is Nicodemus's response to Jesus' kind of defense here. How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses was lifted up, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. <laughs> Nicodemus, He's trying, and our Lord is kind. He's spoken to him directly. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's spoken to him so that his affections take hold. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. He wants him to recognize the truth and let the passions of his imagination take hold of it. And give him the understanding that Jesus desires for Nicodemus. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, so that means at this point, the truths and the examples and everything that he's given are earthly things. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So that, that alone, what's heavenly things like? Because this, this is pretty intense in and of itself. I can only imagine heavenly things. If I told you just earthly things now, and your rigid mind has yet to give in to the passions of the truths that I've given you, how are you even able to comprehend, to even begin to comprehend, and find joy in greater things, in heavenly things? So, a quick example. If we struggle, and, and there's struggles, but if we struggle to lack to find joy in our life now, it's going to be, how, how are we going to find ultimate joy in our life to come? Or what's coming, like Paul does in Romans 8, for the joy, they're not even worth comparing. 
If we're going to live in a manner like Paul, you have to see the value and the joy in your life now, despite everything else around it. You're not going to do that just by reason alone. So what's Jesus implying? He shows us that an aspect of our joy in God, or anything for that matter, is how much of that object, how much of that thing captures the focus of our imagination. If you can't understand earthly things, how can you understand heavenly things? If you, you can't use your, the, the faculties of you, who you are now, your reason, your imagination, your love, your ambition, now, in earthly things, how much more heavenly things? So our experience, and then I, again, it gets you to think, our experience in heavenly things, how much... How deep they must be, how surpassingly they must be. To love God truly and deeply is to have God permeate our imaginations, not just our faculty of reason, because the mind is most engaged in the faculty of the imagination. The mind is most engaged. Where? In the faculty of the imagination. Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? What was, what was part of Jesus' frustration with the Jewish people? They lacked imagination. Their faith was small and lacked the abounding vitality to see greater things. And because of this, some wonderful truths flew right past them. But there were, I'll give you some examples. John 4, 9 through 10, the Samaritan women. How is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a, a woman of Samaria? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and, what is, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She missed it completely. John 7, 37 through 38, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Completely flew over all of them. They missed it. Matthew eleven twenty one through 23. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than you. In Capernaum, how will, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades for the mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom. It would have remained to this day. Again, Jewish cities versus Gentile cities. Completely went over them. Yet the people Jesus highly praised in his ministry were not the ones that you would have expected. They were the ones of great faith and a lively imagination alongside of it. Matthew 15, 21, the Canaanite woman. Again, a non-Jew. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, we just talked about. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out to us. <clears throat> he answered, I was, only, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. 
I think it takes an imagination that this woman possessed to believe that a man could become God and that even a crumb of his power could heal and afflicted and cast out the demonic. Luke 7, verses 1 through 10, the centurion's servant. Now the centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, sent him, <clears throat> he sent to him elders of the Jews asking to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he was the one who built for us our synagogue. And Jesus went to them with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I am a man, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And my servant do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I seen such, has I found such faith. And when those who have been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Again, quite an imagination to believe that Jesus could heal from wherever he was. And by a simple will to do so. No hocus pocus or any of that. He just, if you will it, it will happen. That takes more than reason. <clears throat> because of their belief in the truth, and it captivated the affections of their heart, gave them such hope, their imaginations were fueled by joy in God and the hope that Christ would come and heal and perform miracles in their lives. Imaginations founded on truth. Imaginations brought to life by the affections of the heart. Imagination that fueled endless joy in the one who embodied it. There is significant depth in the greatest commandment when we start to think about this, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. That means all the faculties of man. The heart, the soul, the mind means more than what we may initially think. And the importance of all of this is because belief and satisfaction comes from a lively imagination. Belief and satisfaction comes from a lively imagination. There are many people around the world that know the truths of God and the gospel. They know it. They've been told it many, many times. Yet they're unsatisfied in God. They're unsatisfied in Him. And they find Him insufficient because the faculties of their imaginations are not focused on God. They're focused on other things. If we simply read the book of Revelations, we can see in a powerful display how much God desires satisfaction in Him to also be a lively and inspiring imagination. There's a reason streets are gold and, and all these things. Otherwise, why have it that way? He wants every faculty of man to be lifted up in his praise and joy and love for God. And the passage that Philip read earlier for us, Job 37, part of the reason that was selected was because that, that portion of passage is it's hitting it directly to inspire your imaginations to be lifted up and to admire the God that does all these things. <clears throat> At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening for the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and his lightnings 
and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After his voice roars, his thunders with, with his majestic voice, he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall to the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go to their lairs, and they remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind, and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture, his clouds scattering his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. It's not, it's not a meteorology lesson there. So what does this look like in everyday life? So our application, there's three of them for you. There's more, but I'll, I'll just stick with three. First thing is knowledge is not for knowledge's own sake. It's not for its own sake. We're given knowledge for more than just knowledge's sake. John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you, right? God, Christ has spoken truth, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It doesn't stop I just, I've spoken these things to you. That's it. That's your gift. You're welcome. No, there's a reason why they've spoken these things. It's so that his joy may be in us. The goal of knowledge is not just to know things, but to look beyond them to God. Everything is so that we found our way to the fountain of living waters and find him that will satisfy our longing for grandeur. Him, the only one, he's the only one that our imagination cannot contain. And therefore, we can never stay within our own minds. We must look outward. We must look upon him, the source of all things. All the other enjoyments in life, we can keep trapped in here, but not so for God. Second, the imagination is akin to celebration. Your imagination is akin to celebration. Do you know where I see this manifest most often? When you, when you watch an action movie. Try to watch an action movie and not think you're the, like the hero fighting back all the bad guys. You almost start twitching because you feel like you're going to flick a punch or do a kick or jump off a building or anything like that. It, again, it captures our imaginations. We're celebrating a jo enjoyment of a film. We get involved in it. We move in it. So our imaginations is part of celebration. <clears throat> our last one, a truth-derived imagination enriches all of life. A truth-derived imagination enriches all of life. The beauty of the abundant life God provides in Christ, we get taste of it now, is meant to be experienced. Your Bible reading a little bland? Well, are you just reading it? Or are you trying to deeply experience that which you are really reading? Your relationship's a little short of excitement, whatever relationships they may be. Well, do you, have you given time to understand the truth and the gift of what it is to have others in your life. 
entertainment not entertaining, allow yourselves to really take in the miracle of what existence actually is and what it all means. Identify the truth. Contemplate what it means for your life, all of life, and then soak in the beauty that is our lives. Paint it. Sing it. Channel it. Speak it. Write it. Play it. Find whatever outlet God has gifted you with to bring the joys of your blessed imagination into the world and in turn bless us all. Beautiful art is something we can enjoy, but it lived first in the imagination of the artist. John, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Heavenly and Holy Father, um, we continue to give thanks and praise that we give this opportunity to take time and just contemplate and think of your beauty, your grandeur, that your word that you have given to us does not expire, that it's applicable for all stages of life, all times, all eras, and that will continue into eternity. And we're thankful for that, that we have it right now. Father, I pray for everyone here, um, everyone part of our, group, our church here and, and the greater church beyond. We all need you in, in maybe some new ways through some of the struggles that we've gone through in the past several months. And we just ask you, Lord, to spark our imaginations and hearts and affections towards the things that are everlasting, and that is your Son. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.